Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Mastermind.fm. In this episode, we have Jameson Locke with us. Uh, Jameson is one of the biggest experts in crypto security, especially in the area of Bitcoin. And he's the co-founder of Casa, which is a wallet solution for holding your crypto Bitcoin keys. It's a Bitcoin only solution. Now, uh, in the Bitcoin space, we have various solutions for custodying your Bitcoin. And these can vary from fully custodial solutions like Coinbase, or you can also buy hardware wallets on the other end of the spectrum where you will take responsibility for holding your keys. The problem is that with holding your keys in a hardware wallet, it's a fairly technical process and it's prone to people losing their keys, unfortunately. And on the other hand, if you hold them with a custodian, you're giving up full control of the keys, which is also something that is dangerous because you're assuming a lot of risk from a third party. Now, Casa bridges the gap or intends to bridge the gap between these two solutions by offering a custody solution where they handhold you in setting up a multi-signature wallet. And we'll get into all this during this episode. We'll explain how the multi-signature solution works, what Casa offers. They have different plans depending on, on the kind of user. And even they have inheritance planning, which is something I find really interesting. And we'll just talk about security, how to keep your keys safe, how to recover keys if you lose them. So for anyone who's interested in Bitcoin, buying and holding Bitcoin, I think this is a very important episode to listen to. Even if you don't end up going with Casa, it's very interesting to hear about the different considerations that one must keep in mind when holding Bitcoin. So without further ado, let's go ahead and listen to Jameson together with myself and my dad, Joseph. Hi, Jameson. Welcome to Mastermind.fm. With me, I have my dad, Joseph, as well. And today we'll be talking about Casa and how to keep your Bitcoin secure. So again, welcome, Jameson. And to start off, uh, I know that you've been on many podcasts. People know you. You're one of the OGs in the crypto space. So no need for a long introduction, but let's give the listeners uh, a bit of an intro about who you are and what Casa does. Sure. I'm a software engineer by trade. Um, spent about 10 years doing infrastructure engineering for an online marketing company before I came across this thing called Bitcoin. I spent a few years just doing some open source side projects, trying to better understand Bitcoin before the space became large enough that there was venture capital flowing in and a lot of job opportunities created. So eventually, after three or four years of being a hobbyist, I went full time and have spent the past uh, six years basically focused on low level key management, uh, Bitcoin security, trying to help both enterprises secure their uh funds that are usually customer funds. Um, and then the past few years, I pivoted slightly and have been focused on helping individuals secure their funds and really trying to improve the usability, make this new 
ecosystem easier for people to navigate around. Uh, it's basically there's a million ways that you can screw up and lose your money in this system. And we have to figure out how to help guide people down the path of best practices without requiring them to be really technical or spend hundreds of hours learning all of the intricacies of the system. Yep, very good. So in my opinion, I don't know if you agree, but I guess you agree. <laughs> so custody of, of crypto and Bitcoin especially is one of the biggest headaches and perhaps one of the biggest kind of problems we have as as people who want to get involved in this space, just because it works in a totally different way than, say, the banking system or even buying stocks, where we have a certain level of trust in institutions. Now, Bitcoin turns all of this on its head and demands that people who are holding crypto or who are buying crypto take responsibility for their crypto. Now, there's also a way of giving away this responsibility to custodians, but people like yourself are helping people making the process of holding their own keys and taking this responsibility and making it manageable. So if you could maybe give us a short description of what's the spectrum right now in terms of options people have for holding both in custody or in self-storage and where CASA fits in and what's your model? Yeah, so to kind of back up a little bit to describe what it is that we're actually dealing with here. Um, normally, people are used to having accounts with banks that are tied to their government identity and all sorts of authentication mechanisms go into that. You know, you may have a passport or driver license or uh, other government numbers that are assigned to you that you can use to prove who you are and that you should be able to access the uh, funds in a given account. And, and then what has happened, you know, with the internet age is we've started putting other forms of digital access onto that usernames, passwords, uh, email and SMS to FA. Um, it, it gets fairly complicated, but at the end of the day, you can always fall back to using whatever your government identity is uh, in case you lose those digital authentication mechanisms. Now, we are moving onto a new system now with, with Bitcoin, with these uh, public permissionless uh, cryptographic-based protocols that they don't have an understanding of government identity. Rather, the, the thing that allows you to control your asset is a private key, which is really just a tiny amount of data. We're, we're talking uh, you know, less than a kilobyte of data. Um, for, for the less technical people, it's, you know, it's kind of equivalent to a few sentences worth of random characters. And these really are the keys to the kingdom. And if you have the correct key, then you can follow whatever the rules of the protocol are in order to move those funds around. And if you don't have that key, you can't do anything. So it, it becomes very apparent that this is a critical uh, single point of failure. If you screw this up, you can have a catastrophe where you either have your money 
stolen from you by someone else who gets that key and takes it, or you simply lose access to it and no one in the entire world can get that money back to you. So what we end up with is a, a spectrum of different ways that you can store this data or even have someone else store this data for you. And depending upon how you do it, there are different trade-offs for the, the convenience of, of you being able to access it versus the security properties of who can stop you from being able to access it uh, versus uh, privacy issues. There's so many different um, considerations that it's very hard to say that you know, this is the right way to do it. I think it's important for people to understand the trade-offs. But what ends up happening is that naturally, people prefer to do whatever is most convenient for them. And that is why we have a lot of people in this space who are not controlling their own keys. They are essentially using a third party, usually the exchange where they purchase the, the asset and they just leave it there and they allow that third party to worry about all the private key management issues. And instead, their authentication is just the simple username, password, and perhaps some other form of second factor. Now, this, uh, this is easy for most people to use because they're used to, to using that type of setup with bank accounts and, and thousands of other online services. However, what a lot of people don't understand is if something goes wrong there, either if that custodian has an internal issue where they get hacked, they get breached, and they lose the funds, or if your own authentication gets uh, compromised, someone gets into that account, withdraw the funds, uh, you can still have catastrophic loss. It's just easier for you to use on a day-to-day -day basis because that's what you're used to. So we're trying to get people to move further into new security architectures that these protocols allow, mainly being uh, using your own hardware, your own software to take ownership, to take control of that private key data. And while this does place more responsibility on the user in order to maintain that data, keep backups of it, keep it uh, secure from various types of theft and loss. If you get yourself into a uh, position where you are doing this self-custody, then you're actually able to take advantage of some functionality in the protocol, which is basically you no longer have to ask permission from any third party in order to use your funds to, to move them around. All you have to do is create the correct signatures, create the transaction, put it out on the network, and uh, the rest will take care of itself. Now, this uh, can feel very uh, onerous. Uh, it can feel like a lot of work for people because if you've never done this before and you start looking into it, you get inundated with a hundred different recommendations of this is how you should do it, this is how you should do it. And most of these recommendations are going to be fairly technical. They're going to 
throw a lot of jargon at you that you don't understand. And then you have to back up and spend many, many hours learning what all these different things even mean. So what we're trying to do at CASA is to give people access to these systems, but put a really nice user interface on top of it that doesn't require a lot of, of outside education and, and learning about the intricacies of the system, but rather to provide you with essentially a mobile phone app that has the guidance and the instructions that you need for how to use the software, how to use these other pieces of hardware in order to maintain those keys. And we then bake in the best practices of you know, how should you distribute your keys, how should you store them, so that essentially if you follow the instructions in the mobile app, you put yourself into a security setup that is probably better than 99% of the rest of the people in the space. Very good. I think that's a great description of what you do at a high level. And I don't know if my dad wants to chime in here based on this. Yeah, Jameson, um, I've learned that you passed through an unpleasant experience in, in, in life and possibly uh, triggered this, this idea of providing this security to holders of, of cryptos. Can you elaborate um, on this and, uh, you know, from your past experience, what, what can happen and what are the risks? Yes, I mean, not only myself personally having been uh, targeted by someone who essentially filed a false police report and had my entire neighborhood shut down, uh, causing me some uh, grief and uh, uh, anxiety at the, the fact that my privacy and operational security was not as good as I had assumed. But in the six years that I have spent focused on security in this space, I have learned a lot more from other people's mistakes, thankfully, than from my own mistakes. Um, I have seen many different forms of loss and theft over the years. I've, I've cataloged as many of them as I've been able to uh, remember and find on some of my blog posts. But essentially, every way that it's possible for someone to screw up managing data, uh, that is, we've seen that played out again in this space. And you know, prior to Bitcoin, if you had some sort of data problem, then you know, maybe you lose some files, you don't have some backups. Uh, usually it's not a catastrophic issue. Or usually the worst things that we would hear of would be things like uh, credit card uh, breaches and identity theft. And those can certainly be annoying, but usually they don't result in you losing the vast majority of your net worth uh, overnight. It's more of a uh, an issue where you have to go around and deal with all of these third parties again uh, to just try to clean up a mess. So the real the problem I think in the disconnect between the old forms of data loss and the issues that we have now with private key management is that you can't go back and clean up a failure if you have a private key. A catastrophic issue. So instead, you have to put in the work up front. You have to be a lot more proactive about putting yourself in a good position so that you are 
well defended against all of these different forms of threats and loss. And that's just, it's not, it's not the type of environment that people are used to operating in. Um, we are used to having trusted third parties out there that we can go to if something goes wrong and ask them to fix whatever problem has occurred. And now, you know, this is the trade-off that we have with this system where it allows us to have great power, but as the saying goes, with great power comes great responsibility. So this is resulting in people having to have a shift, I think, in the way that they operate, where they can't just assume that someone out there will be able to save them if something goes wrong. They really they need to help themselves uh, up front so that they don't have to, to worry about um, having some sort of catastrophe that they can't recover from. And unfortunately, most people, I think, in the space have to suffer from at least one small issue or some close call that kind of gives them a wake up to, that says, you know, you need to, to go and put in some effort into uh, putting yourself into a better position here. But I think in a lot of cases, what happens is someone does suffer from a catastrophic loss. And then at that point, they either just completely quit using the entire system because they're, they're so turned off uh, and that they don't want to think about it, um, or they just have to start over from scratch. Well, people my age, I'm 65 years old, worry about these situations because it's hard to earn money. Um, you, you're saving for the rainy day. When you get old, maybe you need to go to an old people's home or something like that. Therefore, it's important that we protect um, these savings. There are various threats, as we were saying, lost debt hacking, um, you know, attacks, coercion, whatever. And uh, this thing of, of cryptos, holding cryptos, um, for many people like uh, me in my age bracket, who are not, say, as savvy on computer systems and all that as your generation, feel a bit vulnerable and uh, they say okay um, but can i buy cryptos or bitcoin and sort of deposit them with somebody like a bank as you said and then uh, i put my my mind at rest and i also earn i also earn some some returns because they promise returns as well the other two alternatives are either to keep everything yourself and do your own thing and with all the sort of dangers that there are. And uh, the other alternative is your, your solution, which I, I found quite intriguing. I also heard your slogan, help people to help themselves, which sounds great, actually. Um, don't you think that, that the public might perceive this to be, you know, uh, too generous and altruistic to, to business here? And uh, in this mission, um, again, did your personal experience affect you? And uh, when I ask you, um, why should I put the money with the, the bitcoins with Gaza rather than with uh, another company that gives me returns. What are the advantages and disadvantages? Sure. Yes. Yeah, so um, 
it's an interesting space because a lot of the self-custody wallet solutions that exist are completely free. It's you know software that you download, you run, and you have to figure out how to use it yourself. Casa is an, an interesting kind of hybrid situation in that we are charging for the services that we offer, uh, but one of the reasons for that is that we actually offer uh, a higher level of support. Pretty much all of these free uh, wallets that you can download and run yourself, um, if you want help, you are probably going to end up using community and volunteer resources. You may be able to you know, send help tickets to the actual developers themselves, but there's not gonna be any sort of service level agreement around when or if they're going to respond to you, you know, depending upon the current conditions of how overwhelmed they are. On the other hand, you know, if you go with a, a full custody provider, you may or may not have a, a good level of, of help. Um, what we've really found there is, especially with exchanges, it depends on whether it's a bull market or a bear market. If it's a bull market, you may not get a response for weeks, if not months. Uh, we've seen some incredible backlogs there uh, trying to get requests through. And you know this can also affect you if you want to move your money. What is What we've seen happen a number of times is you deposit your money with the custodian and you you have a withdrawal limit that is probably well over your total account balance uh, if you're starting out small but then your know, bitcoin goes up uh, 10x and you can no longer withdraw your account balance because it's over the limit so you request a limit increase and i've done this with a variety of providers myself and you know if it's if it's during a quiet period maybe that limit increase gets approved in a week or so, but I've had some limit increases that took over a year to get approved uh, just because that uh, exchange was so busy and I was not considered a priority. But you know, why, why does CASA want to help people help themselves? I mean, it is a business model. You know, we are uh, trying to get revenue and profits and all of that. Um, it is, I would say, probably not nearly as profitable as a fully uh, custodial business because unlike a lot of custody providers, we don't charge based on the amount of money that you're storing. Um, the you know, enterprise and institutional level custodians will charge, I think, usually around 20 bips uh, per year uh, for whatever you're storing with them. Uh, ours... We're, we're just doing flat fees, which is really based on the level of customer uh, service that you're paying for. You know, how, how many hours uh, of service are we essentially offering to you to help you uh, when issues come up, uh, help you onboard, help you move things around, and so on and so forth. But at an even higher level, I think that it's important for us to be able to get more people onboarded into self-custody because this is actually this is relevant to kind of the security of the ecosystem as a whole. You get into some interesting game theory issues if the vast majority of Bitcoin is held by a small number of entities, then 
there it starts to become questionable as to you know what level of power do they have over potentially trying to change the system or even just being attack targets you know uh you could have just a handful of of governments come in and essentially seize all of the bitcoin that's at a few different companies so we for example at casa do not want to be a a target where a uh, government could not come in and seize the bitcoin that is held by our clients because casa only has one out of in keys you know we don't have enough keys to uh, prevent someone from moving their money or to move their money without their authorization you know it's it's a new type of you could call it like a hybrid custody model or a a shared custody or semi custody uh, but this was the model that I actually was working with 6 years ago when I started uh, being full time in Bitcoin and I thought it was interesting because if you you know we can be a third party and we can help people um use their keys we can give them guidance we can even uh and we do we hold one key in their multi signature key set but that means we can only facilitate uh transactions if they get into an emergency situation we can't actually create a transaction and send money out of the wallet uh and so this is an interesting uh setup where at least from a regulatory standpoint for now you know we are not a bank we are not providing banking services we're we're not a financial regulated service provider we're just a a software and a, a service provider where we can we can kind of sit in this uh gray area where we can help people but we don't have power over their funds i actually i was going to ask you about this therefore you're not regulated and uh, that's the mm-hmm. reason why you don't ask for uh, know your client information any documentation etc and a new subscriber can possibly go into the system under um, a different name right uh, to preserve his uh, his identity and i think that this also ensures that um, nobody who is working with casa maybe eventually who would have some wrong intentions if he leaves he cannot really do any damage um, Do, do you confirm this? Yes, yeah, so for creating an account, we require an email address. Uh we have plenty of people just create uh you know a unique proton mail or you know, some other privacy email address that is not associated with anything else or with their identity. Um you can provide us with a pseudonym. Uh it doesn't have to be your real name. And it can get a little tricky because for our premium clients we we ship physical uh hardware devices um we, so in that case we recommend either you know having a a private mailbox set up somewhere that's not your address or you can forego having the devices shipped to you and you can buy them yourselves directly from the manufacturer um the the only other trade off um basically comes into play with the authentication of 
requesting sensitive actions on your account. So if you want to make changes, um, you know, say to your email or login, or uh, if you want to request that CASA signs a transaction, then this is something that is decided when you get onboarded. But there are a variety of different options for what authentication gets used in those scenarios. Now, the strongest form of authentication is we, we do an actual audio video chat and we, we can keep an encrypted photo on file of you so that when we get on audio video chat, we can be sure that we're actually talking to that client. If someone does not want to uh, give a photo and they want to, you know, say remain audio only and not give up any other information, then you can also take a photo of some other object that is important to you, uh, use that as a second factor of authentication. And then there are also additional things that we can do regarding uh, sort of duress scenarios, um, emergency contacts uh, that we can reach out to if something goes wrong, because um, we also have a feature in the app, which is basically this emergency lockdown that, you know, turns off all of the uh, functionality of the app until uh, we reach out and authenticate that everything is okay with you. But this is really a part of the, the higher level you know, white glove service that our premium tiers get. It's just a lot more customization. And this is because we realize that everybody has different levels of security and privacy models that they are willing to go through different trade-offs they're willing to make and you know, this is this is why it is helpful to have you know, security experts that you're essentially paying for their consultation because there are many different decisions that need to be made and every one of these decisions really comes down to uh, security versus convenience okay let's talk about how the setup actually works like the i think we can just go directly to the three of five keys uh, setup just because i think given the fact that it includes that hand holding and the initial shipping of the keys that would be what most of our listeners perhaps and i guess that's the biggest selling product that you have yeah this was our uh, original product and since then, we've, we've released a higher tier and we've released a lower uh, sort of self-service basic multi-signature tier. This is the platinum tier, the three of five key shield. So essentially, the way that you know, these Bitcoin transactions work, like we've already said, is you have a private key and uh, that controls the funds in a given address. And if you want to spend the funds, you have to create a signature with that private key, and then you broadcast the transaction to the network and it validates that everything is correct and that allows the funds to be moved. But that is only the, the simple single signature way of doing things. For about eight years now, the protocol has supported something called multi-signature. And essentially what that means is that instead of only signing with one private key, you can create deposit addresses that have more complicated spending conditions. So you can say, 
the funds in this address can only be spent if three out of these five keys add signatures to the transaction. If you only have one signature or two signatures, then it's not a valid transaction and the network should reject it. And as you can imagine, you know, this, this gets a bit more onerous because you have to go around and get private keys uh, from various places. But the idea here is that, that this is for highly secure long-term storage. And so the way that we accomplish this is that we've designed a system that is eliminating single points of failure. And that means absolutely anything that can go wrong. We don't want there to be a single thing that can go wrong that can cause you to lose access to your funds. So the way that we do that is through diversity. Uh, that's diversity in where the keys are stored, diversity in how the keys are stored, diversity in different manufacturers and companies that are used for the, the key storage. So the standard three of five setup, you'll have, like I said, five different keys. One of them will be held by CASA completely offline, can't get used unless you go through all the authentication mechanisms that we set up with you. One of them will be stored on your phone and will be secured by the secure element that's in the hardware on your phone. So that means in order to use it, uh, whatever unlocking mechanism you have on your phone, whether it's a pin or biometrics or facial recognition or whatever, that will uh, be sort of the uh, authentication mechanism for accessing that key. Then you will have three different air-gapped hardware devices. These are Trezor, Ledger, Cold Card, and so on. Uh, we'll, we'll continue adding support for more, you know, whatever is, uh, is popular and, and well-vetted on the market. And each of these three devices will generate its own uh, set of private keys and you know, that will never be uh, touched uh, essentially by the internet. And so what you end up with here is you know, five different keys, only one of them is on an internet connected device, uh, which is the phone. And that is really used to add the first transaction to a, or first signature to a transaction when you're initially creating it. Then in order to finalize a transaction, you will need to travel around to two different other devices and have them add signatures. Normally, you know, this is where it really comes down to the client and what their own situation is. Um, you may keep one of those devices in a safe in your home. You may keep one at a secure area at your office. We recommend keeping one in a highly secure vault, either at a bank or a private vaulting company. And the whole idea here is the geographic separation, of course, gets you uh, security from attackers. Um, an attacker is not going to want to have to you know, take you hostage and move you around through multiple locations. You know, that just uh, it's, it's, it's too risky for an attacker to have to do something like that. Uh, using the different uh, air-gapped hardware devices will protect you from hackers. Like we said, only one of those keys is even on an internet connected device in the first place. 
And you're also just getting a lot of robustness. You know, even if there's something like a fire or flood, some other sort of natural disaster, then it's unlikely to affect more than one of those keys. So even if you have a key get uh, lost or compromised or destroyed or, or what have you, you make it very easy inside of the app to actually mark that key as compromised. And then you can go get a new device and plug it in. And we, we guide you through what we call a key rotation to essentially uh, roll over your key set uh, and get rid of that old key and, and basically reestablish your key set with the new device. Um, there's a lot of considerations that have gone into this, uh, you know, more than we could even feasibly go into. You know, we have about 30 pages uh, on our website that describe the security architecture and all the decisions that went into um, you know, why we set up certain things in a certain way. But one of the nice things, I think, from the usability standpoint is that the user no longer really has to worry about managing these uh, seed phrase backups on their own. They can basically rely upon the security of the different hardware devices and uh, the ability to rotate out the device if something goes wrong. A nice thing from a, a backup perspective is that the mobile key has an encrypted backup that happens automatically to your uh, cloud storage. Uh, the CASA key, of course, has multiple redundant offline backups. And then if you want to, you can, of course, always make additional backups for the seed phrases of the uh, hardware devices that you set up. It's a sort of an edge case question, though, is because really the extreme scenario that could result in funds loss, it would require all three of those hardware devices to be lost or destroyed simultaneously. So generally, if you don't keep all three of those devices in the same place and there's not some sort of you know, cataclysmic um, like solar flare that fries all of the electronics on, on one side of the world, uh, then you should generally be okay. But some people want to protect against that too. So you can always make backups and CASA has no way, of course, of knowing uh, if you've done that. Okay. Um, I know that on the website there is a really deep explanation of all these threat models and how you protect against them and why you chose to not do certain things. So I highly encourage people to read them. I want to go through a few maybe points related to this and we can keep this short like a Q&A on why you chose certain things uh, first of all the seedless things keeps coming up and I know that some competitors actually criticize you for choosing this as being anti-bitcoin thinking not to, to throw away so to speak the the seed words how would you convince someone who's freaking out about seedless and that being the main reason why it wouldn't move to casa uh well the first thing is it's a choice right uh like i said we can't stop anyone from doing it we have no way of knowing what you're doing with the seeds but um i think i, I have a, a lengthy blog post from a couple of years ago of why i consider seed phrases to be overly complex and not user-friendly and one of these issues is just the fact that when you set up one of these hardware devices, 
it'll tell you, okay, here's the seed phrase. Now write it down and keep it in a safe place. And there is a whole mountain of security knowledge and issues hidden underneath that keep it in a safe place is that now you have once more, you have this tiny amount of data and you're trying to figure out how to keep it secure. Well, they tell you to you know, write it down on a piece of paper. Well, of course, that paper is not going to be safe against a fire or flood or anything else. So then what happens? Well, people say, okay, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll put it and stamp it in metal. And this is actually another side project I've done is testing a lot of these different metal seed backup devices. I would say about half of them are decent. About half of them are not decent in my testing and would actually not survive a house fire. Um, so you have to be careful about that. Even if you get, um, I, would, I would recommend something like a seed plate, a very just simple piece of steel, and you, you put uh, basically divots in that. That's going to be robust against really any type of loss, but you still have the issue of physical attackers because this is not encrypted data. It's just in the clear. So any physical adversary who manages to find it, now they have that seed freeze. So if you want to protect against physical attackers, now you, you start going down this other rabbit hole as well. Do I put it in a highly secure bank vault? Well, even if you do that, you should probably assume that um, you know, a, a rogue bank employee or sometimes banks have been known just to drill open you know, safety deposit boxes and empty them out, or they might get coerced by uh, agents of uh, the state uh, to do that for who knows what reason. You know, this is basically, you can see like we're going down, we're trying to figure out what is the actual threat model, how do we secure it against everything. And the reason that I really like these hardware devices is that they've already done all of the, the heavy lifting on securing you from physical adversaries. Because basically, if a, a adversary gets a hold of one of these devices, if they don't know the pin to unlock the device, they're not going to be able to get the, uh, the private keys off of that. So, you know, this this is, uh, it can be a controversial topic. Um, sort of my take is that it actually, it simplifies things. It makes it easier to reason about the security model. And when you have a security architecture that is using all these devices, but then you also have the seed phrases in the clear and basically uh, backups of this data, then you have to figure out you know, how, how does this possibly make the security model weaker? Because you know, for example, if you were keeping the backup in the same place as the actual device, then you've completely lost any protection against physical attackers and having those keys distributed. If you keep them in a different place in the device, then now you have you know, six different places that you're worried about. Uh, you know, three for the actual devices and three for the, the seeds. So yeah, I mean, this is kind of goes back to what we really started out with, was saying that you know, there's no there's no way that you can say this is the perfect way of doing key management because every decision you make has trade-offs. And um, when it comes to having like the seed backups, what you're really saying is I am interested in trading off some security against attackers in order for more security against loss. Um, you know, by having multiple redundant backups, 
I know that even if I lose this one over here, I can always recreate it over here. But now you're kind of ping-ponging between uh, two different issues. So yeah, um, what at Casa we we tend to lean towards user friendliness and simplicity. Mm -hmm. I think actually that's with one key, the seed backup is pretty manageable and I can figure a safe way to do it. But when you have three keys to protect, that becomes a major headache and anxiety inducing exercise to, to protect them as well as your keys. Right. Yeah, because if, if you kept, so if you keep backups of all three hardware devices, then that is, that is a spendable threshold of keys right there. So if an attacker got all three of those, they could spend from your three of five key set. Um, this is generally our recommendation if someone wants to do backups, as we say, keep one backup uh, and keep that in the highly physically secure bank vault that you are, are sure that almost nobody is going to be able to get into. And even in the extreme case where like the bank goes rogue or they get coerced, then you're going to be okay because that's only one out of five keys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, in terms of bank vaults, I think they're common in the US, but here in Europe, they're kind of on the way out. I know that hmm. in, in Malta, where my dad is, they closed them off. And here in Spain, when I last looked, it wasn't, um, no major bank where of, was offering them. So it's not that easy to find this, this bank vault. Uh, in terms of the iCloud, this is another thing, the iCloud backup. So mm -hmm. some people hear iCloud, they remember the hacks yeah. and they freak out about iCloud. <laughs> so what exactly is the model there? And can somebody use Casa without using iCloud? Sure. Uh, and also this is another thing that, you know, we have a blog post about how the mobile key backup system works. So the default uh, is that if you're on an Apple device, of course, uh, it uses iCloud. If you're on an Android device, it uses Google Drive. And what, what happens is the, the phone itself generates another random bit of data uh, in addition to the seed phrase. And that bit of data is used to encrypt your seed phrase. That uh, encrypted seed phrase data is then stored either on iCloud or Google Drive. So what this means is this protects you against either Apple or Google snooping and trying to get your keys because there's only encrypted data there. It also protects you against any other hacker who might somehow get access to your cloud account. And the uh, the important part here is that that uh, decryption data is actually sent to CASA, where it is then additionally encrypted with hardware that we have. So what you can think of this as creating kind of a two-of-two multi-sig just for that one mobile key. So if, for example, you lose your phone uh, or your phone breaks or whatever, you buy a new phone, then you download the CASA app, you log in, and, and this is important, you also have to be logged in to the phone on that same Apple or Google account. And what happens is you log in, it notices that your mobile key is missing, 
and then goes and looks on iCloud or Google Drive for that encrypted piece of data. It then goes to Casa and says, hey, I'm authenticated as this user. Send me the decryption key. And Casa sends that over, and they get reconstituted on the phone itself. Now, we did this because we think it is about as user-friendly as you can get. You know, the user never actually has to think about private keys. Um, they don't have to do anything other than be logged into their various accounts, which this day and age, people can generally figure out you know, how to log into your, your various online accounts. Now, it is not a requirement, however. Um, in fact, I use an Android phone that is not connected to Google Drive. So this is not an option for me. And in this scenario, what you can do is use our alternative mobile key backup system, which um, it basically creates an encrypted mobile key backup uh, in the same way. But instead of having that encrypted data go off to the cloud, we present it to you as a QR code. And you can save that QR code you know, as a PDF. You can print it out. You can really do whatever you want with it. And we also like this uh, as opposed to giving the person the actual seed phrase, which is also an option we can talk about later. Um, but once again, the reason we do this is because we can't make any assumptions about how the client is going to store that data. We have to assume that it may not be safe against physical attackers. And since this is only encrypted data, we know that even if a physical attacker finds that QR code, that paper printout, whatever, they are not going to be able to access those private keys. Now, there is an option in the app to export the actual seed phrase for the mobile key. We only recommend doing this in what we call a sovereign recovery uh, situation where you are trying to recover funds without talking to CASA. And if you do that, it will actually mark the key as compromised in the app and uh, will then basically force you to do a, a key rotation because at that point, we really don't know um, about the integrity of that seed phrase. Okay, very interesting. So, yeah, the, the, the flexibility is also available within CASA to kind of set up things the way you want them if you think a particular setup is more secure for you. So that's that's really great. And now in terms of hardware devices, you chose to use the Trezor and the Ledger in terms of sending them out to your clients. Is it because they're the most commonly used? Because, for example, the question might arise, why not use a cold card or a bitbox? Yeah, uh, so Trezor and Ledger are by far the most popular and uh, I would say battle tested. Um, they, they tend to work quite well. They have different security models themselves, and you know, this is why we recommend using a diversity of devices. Now, uh, we also support cold card, though it is not uh, a default device that we ship out. Um, we will ship it out uh, to our, our top tier customers if they ask for it. Uh, the reason for this is it's, it's a little bit less user-friendly. It requires, instead of just plugging in a USB cord, you actually have to do uh, file transfers with little micro um, SD cards, and so you have to have some additional adapters and stuff. Um, however, uh, cold card is nice in the sense that uh, it makes it easy if you want to, for example, do transaction signing while you're in the middle of a bank vault, uh, which is essentially a giant Faraday cage that 
probably does not have internet access. Uh, your phone probably doesn't work in there. So there, once again, there's there's more trade-offs. Um, I do. I am a fan of Cold Card. Uh, we've also we've started beta testing uh, foundation uh, devices, which is uh, it's actually based off of Cold Card. So it's a very similar experience, and we'll have you know, I think a similar security model. So um, you know it is it is once again uh, an issue of sort of convenience uh, and other trade offs. But um, there are many other hardware devices on the market uh, that we could add support for. But you know each time we add uh, another device, uh, that just you know it creates more complexity, more things for us to have to support. And um, one of the trickiest things that we've found over the past few years is it's actually a, it's a result of the high level of security that we, we chose for this architecture. And that basically is the trade-off of the fact that we're using a lot of hardware and software that CASA has no control over with all of these devices. And that is a good thing because it minimizes the trust that you have with CASA. You know, when, you are, when you are signing a transaction, obviously you're creating it and, and adding that first signature on the phone, but then you're having to go around and you are additionally verifying all of the details of that transaction with multiple other manufacturers, hardware and software, so that you know that even if there was a bug in the CASA software, you would catch it uh, while you were validating like on your Trezor or Ledger. And this, this is great for security. The downside is you know, it's possible for these other manufacturers to change their software in ways that makes it less user-friendly. Or you know, we've even had incidents where uh, it was actually the Trezor Model T firmware was incompatible with our signing for almost two months uh, last year. Um, and so this is one of the things that we're working on trying to improve the communication between the different uh, hardware vendors and software wallet vendors in this space so that we can stay on the same page and not step on each other's toes. Mm -hmm. Is there a threat where the app itself gets compromised and does something untoward within that time period where it's compromised? where it changes the model, say, out of three or five, it might siphon off the funds or? Yeah, this is actually a fairly common question, at least from the more sophisticated people, is like, you know, what is the worst case scenario if CASA either went rogue or was coerced into essentially uh, putting malware in the app? Um, could CASA steal my funds? Um, so the... The short version is, you know, we can't steal funds because we only have one of the five keys. I would say the, the greatest threat against CASA software becoming malicious would actually be in generating deposit addresses that don't have the spending conditions that you believe that they have. And in this case, the way that you can actually verify that that is not happening is by creating a watch-only wallet that you run on separate software. So much like how uh, we recommend, you know, you're using multiple different vendors 
for verifying the transactions when you're spending them. You can also, uh, and we have instructions for this you know, on our blog and on our, our website, you can use other uh, multi-sig compatible software like Electrum or Spectre to essentially recreate your CASA setup. And when you do that, you are, you're specifically saying, you know, I'm creating a wallet that requires three out of five signatures. And then you give it the, the public keys for each of those five keys. And the, the software will then you know, generate all of your addresses and find your transactions and so on and so forth. This gets really deep into the technical weeds, but the reason why this provides uh, assurance against CASA uh, changing the spending conditions is that a Bitcoin address is actually based off of a cryptographic hash of all of those spending conditions. And a cryptographic hash is essentially a fingerprint. If you change a single byte of information that's going into that hash, the hash completely changes, and therefore the Bitcoin address would completely change. So if you have your watch-only wallet and you look at the deposit address of that and compare it to the deposit address that you see in the CASA uh, wallet, they should match up perfectly. If they don't match up perfectly, then something has gone wrong. Something has you know, changed with the spending conditions. Okay, so to recap, the only threat would be if you try to spend, if you're just passively storing your Bitcoin for the long term, the app itself, even if it gets hacked for a few days and nobody notices or whatever, it's not going to change anything because your funds are still protected exactly. by your keys themselves. Yes, the, really, the only sensitive operations are when you are transacting, either a deposit or a withdrawal. And I think the withdrawal um, mechanism, well, it's a lot more straightforward because you're actually looking on the screen and having to say, you know, this is the amount and this is the uh, address where the funds are going. The deposit uh, authentication or validation requires a little bit more effort to set up initially, but I would say it's maybe like 10 minutes uh, to set up. It's really copy pasting and following our step-by-step -step guide. And for those who have maybe some anxiety about depositing, a big chunk of Bitcoin into CASA, exporting from the exchange or previous wallets. Is that something where it's foolproof or is there something that can go wrong there? This is an interesting thing that comes up fairly often, I think, with with people who are newer to the space is you know, they want to send a test deposit for you know, $10 or something. And yeah, uh, it, you can certainly do that. Um, I would note that we actually offer a Bitcoin testnet support in the app. And so what you can do like before you even do anything where you're using real Bitcoin or real value is that you can just toggle on the Bitcoin testnet functionality and we'll, we'll send you some testnet Bitcoin, which has no value, but it works exactly like Bitcoin. It's just a different network. And you can play around with all the different functions, you know, deposit, withdraw, creating sub-accounts, moving money between your own accounts, so on and so forth. And uh, this is, you know, part of the onboarding practice that uh, 
you know, people who are doing their due diligence uh, definitely like being able to do. I would say the most extreme level of diligence that you can do is to then go through the sovereign recovery process, which is a, a, a separate guide where essentially once you finish creating your CASA key set, we send you instructions for how to recover your money outside of CASA. So this is, like we said, uh, eliminating every single point of failure, including us as a company and us as a software provider, that we're essentially proving to you that we are following the various standards of the Bitcoin protocol and that there are multiple other pieces of uh, compliant software that you can download and recreate and spend uh, your funds from, you know, even if CASA gets hit by an asteroid or something, if we cease to exist for some reason. Okay. Uh, Jameson, you have four plans, right? Yeah. If somebody wants to start with a small holding with uh, the plans for an increase, a uh, systematic increase, a early increase, what do you suggest? Uh, or do you actually have a discussion with the potential client before he starts so that he chooses the, the right plan for him? And uh, what about the fees? Are they fixed irrespective of the holding? Uh, how does it work? Yeah. Uh, so we have uh, multiple uh, salespeople who are available to schedule calls with. Um, if, if you want to better understand uh, you know, what the offerings for each plan are and you know, what level of service probably suits you best, you should have a button at the very top of our website where you can uh, get a, a calendar uh, set up to, to call one of them. But the, the high-level explanation is we have our, our free uh, silver tier, which is just a single signature wallet on the phone. You really don't want to put more than a few hundred dollars in that because that is a single point of failure. It's just to get people uh, used to seeing what the, uh, the user experience of the app is like. Our, our lowest level uh, tier that I would use for actual value uh, as the gold tier, it's really a self-service type of um, multi-signature wallet where you bring your own hardware device. You can essentially buy whatever hardware you want uh, from any of the supported manufacturers. And uh, we, we then have, we have both tutorials online and we do, I think, uh, bi-weekly sort of group onboarding um, walkthroughs uh, if you need help getting set up on that. That's a two out of three multi-sig. So it gives you some uh, redundancy. It's not the sort of extreme level of security and redundancy uh, that our higher tiers have, but it's definitely good uh, to get started. And going up from there is the platinum, which is the, the one that we've really been talking about most of the time. Our, our highest level tier, well, platinum, uh, let's see, I believe platinum is around $1,500 a year. And it, all of these are unrelated to um, your actual holdings. Uh, let's see. Yeah, so gold, I, if I didn't mention gold is $120 a year, uh, platinum is $1,800 a year. And then the final one is the diamond, which is our sort of extreme level of, of white glove service for $5,000 a year. 
what that offers um, on top of platinum is just uh, a higher level of service, like being able to to call us, you know, around the clock uh, if anything goes wrong. We give you this additional three out of six multi-sig, which you can either just use that on your own, or you can use it as part of our inheritance and estate planning service. And that's one of the main reasons uh, for the, the jump up in the price is if you choose to onboard with the um, inheritance, then essentially what we end up doing is uh, onboarding either your attorney or your um, estate advisor, you know, whoever is going to be executing your uh, last will and testament. And we are we're onboarding them as a key holder. So the, the short version of how the architecture of that uh, plan works is that you have three out of six key set, and at any given time, you have access to four out of those six keys, but then one of those keys is going to be held by CASA, and one of them is going to be held by the estate advisor. One of them is also going to be held in some sort of uh, deposit box that has beneficiaries listed on it. And so of course you can, you can access that key at any time, but the trick here and the important part and the way that this was designed is that at any given point in time, there are also three keys that can be accessed through the estate process. And so that is you know, the one key with beneficiaries uh, in uh, whatever uh, safety deposit box or other deposit institution, and then CASA, and then the estate planner. So the whole point being that with uh, essentially death certificate or court order um, as part of the estate process, those three keys can be accessed even if your phone and other hardware devices can no longer be accessed. Very interesting. Um, last question from my end would be if there is someone who wants to hold um, his money, maybe his children's or his parents' money and Bitcoin, and maybe his company's Bitcoin, could he use one CASA account to manage these multiple accounts, so, so to speak? Yes. Yeah, so the nice thing about the way that wallets in Bitcoin work is that once you have created that uh, root level public-private key pair, you can essentially derive a nearly unlimited amount of private keys off of that. And so we have functionality where you can create what we call sub-accounts, but at a low level, you're essentially just um, creating different segregated uh, buckets of Bitcoin. Um, they are still all managed by the same uh, high, like root private keys, but they at, at a much lower level are, are actually managed by separate private keys. And, and what this results in is just sort of a logical separation of the addresses and of the funds that get deposited into those addresses. So um, within the app, you know, once you have your key set set up, it's very easy to create a sub-account. You really just click a button and you say, you know, create a sub-account with this name. And at that point in time, 
uh, it will generate another set of sovereign recovery instructions and you'll be able to interact with that sub-account the same as with uh, the original main account that you set up. Okay, and that would be using then the same five keys in the 305 model? Yes. And even I want a separate account for like day-to-day -day spending, does that work in the same way? Would be a sub-account in that case? Yeah, so there's there's a couple of ways to go about doing that. Uh, really, if someone wants more of a day-to-day -day spending account, then you're actually probably going to want a different security model. You're, you're not going to want to have to travel around to multiple places to spend. So there's, um, there's two different options there. If you're a uh, premium you know, platinum or diamond tier where you have that three of five or three of six key set, First of all, everyone at every tier gets the single signature wallet. You can always keep a small amount on there. Like I said, I wouldn't put more than a few hundred dollars on it, but that's good for day-to-day -day spending. Though if you want more sort of a medium tier, like if you want to be able to spend, say, I don't know, something less than $10,000, then what we can actually do is we can enable the uh, two of three multi-sig in your same account. You would want a separate hardware device for that, but you could essentially have one key on your phone and then keep the second hardware device somewhere that's not too hard to access. And that would be a way for you to be able to spend you know, medium, tier amounts of money without having to travel all over the place. And you could also annotate expenses, add a note, say, yep. for accounting purposes. One final question from my side, uh, Jameson. When it comes to payments, how is it affected in a way that maybe you protect your identity? Is it by wire transfer? Um, but you, you have to disclose your name, no? Yeah, so if you want to sign up and you want to be uh, pseudonymous, then I would say most of our clients end up choosing to pay in Bitcoin. The more hardcore ones will uh, essentially send us coins that they have mixed. Another option, I'm not, I'm not sure what your availability is uh, in Europe. But um, there are various uh, privacy debit cards or you know, prepaid debit cards that you can set up. It just depends on you know what our uh, card processor will accept. You know, sometimes those get rejected. Sometimes they get uh, accepted. I've yeah, they they're not easy to find as in the US where you can just walk into a store and buy a twenty dollar voucher. Yeah, yeah. most of the time I found that they work uh, for me. Uh, I also, I use privacy.com a lot, uh, which allows you to create virtual debit cards. And mm -hmm. those very, very rarely get uh, rejected. Um, but I'm also not sure if they're available outside of the US. Yeah, have a look at that. But you can always pay via bank transfer, no? We, we do support uh, wire transfers. Um, not sure offhand how how private those are though. I don't think they're as private as. Uh, I don't think they're private. Yeah. <laughs> so um, 
I would say very few of our customers end up going that route. It is, it's a bit more onerous for us. Like we don't have an automated checkout system for it. Uh, we have to you know, actually like email you the wire transfer information and then go check the account every once in a while. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jameson, for this quite interesting discussion. And uh, as you were kept repeating during the podcast, rightly so, all this information is available on your blog, um, the Casa blog. And I also highly recommend people to look into your personal blog where like it's uh, you can spend probably years looking mm -hmm. <laughs> through all the material. And there's also a list of extra resources that you collected from all over the web. So people, even if they're new to Bitcoin, they can probably just start from your blog and take it from there. So thanks a lot for joining us. And yeah, if you have any places to direct people, both to contact you and to check out your products. Sure. Uh, our website is keys.casa, K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. -S and you can find my website, all my resources at lop.net, L-O-P-P dot N-E-T. Thank you, Jameson. It was a real pleasure. Excellent. Thank you very much, Dan. Thanks for having me. So that's a wrap for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And as usual, I ask you to leave a five-star review on iTunes if you like the show and all the other shows we've produced so far. Please let us know if there is any other topic that you'd like us to tackle or platform to review. We're very open for hearing from you, your opinions, whether you like the shows we're producing. And yeah, just if, you, if you've been listening to this show for the past few episodes or it's the first episode that you listen, we'd really, really appreciate if you could even just get in touch and tell us how you're finding it, what you'd like us to improve and things like that. So the email is podcast at mastermind.fm. Again, podcast at mastermind.fm. And you can also find, find us on Twitter at mastermind.fm. That's it for today from us and see you in the next episode.